0: Okay, Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read that together, if you have your Bible open there. uh, We will also have the words up on the screen in case you don't have your Bible, or uh, there are some Bibles on the table in the middle of the sanctuary there, back by the pole. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand or go grab one. All right. All right. So, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 of the tribe of Asher 12,000 of the tribe of Naphtali 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon 12,000 of the tribe of Levi 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin 12,000 After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for the freedom to read your word. And Lord, as we read and hear these words, anytime we read Scripture, your voice is heard. For these words are your words And their voice is your voice. And so, Lord, speak to us this morning. We want to hear. We need to hear from you. Every day, every week, Lord, we need to hear from you. So bring to our hearts this morning that which we need to hear, both as a church, as a congregation, and as individuals, Lord, people who are hungry and thirsty and we have questions. God, speak to us answer what we need to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And I've said before, especially as we started this study in the book of Revelation, there seems to be so few churches, so few pastors who want to teach the book of Revelation. And there is a prevailing idea out there, and in fact, I've heard it a number of times this week, strangely enough, from, with my own ears from people I was talking with. I've seen it on social media. I've heard it from some of you. And that, that prevailing opinion is, well, who can really know? You, you start reading God's Word and everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a thought. Everybody has a theory. And as Pastor Mitch and I were talking about that this morning, it just seems to me that Satan is is just putting this idea out there that who can really know, right? Who can really know the truth of God's word? In fact, this one person I was talking to this week, just inviting him to read God's word. He's a believer, but he told me straight up, he said, I don't really read God's word because I can't understand it. And there's too many opinions about it. And I just don't even want to bother. So I just pray and I just try to follow Jesus the best I can. And I said, no offense, but, but how? How do you... Do that without God's word? How do you know what the truth is? How do you know who you're following and what you're doing without God's word? And so the book of Revelation, you know, is one of those books that piece just like off limits to people. And so last week we were, you know, we've been trying to dial this in just to help us all understand this. And I, I had mentioned this last week and I'll mention it again. That, you know, we were brought up in a, a, a Western society, right? With Logic. Things go from point A to point B. There's a clear line of thought. And, uh, you know, think about everything we do in the business world, right? There's slides, there's bullet points, there's one, two, three. Everything's in a neat package. But in Hebrew thought and in Semitic thought, so often it starts with a high level, and it gives you a picture, it gives you an overview, and then it comes back as it moves on through the material and fills in the details of that higher level material. So the way it's presented so often is not in a linear fashion, it's sort of in a hierarchical fashion. You get layer one first, then you come back and get layer two, which kind of reviews layer one and gives some details to layer one, but then layer three comes back and gives details to layer two and to layer one. And so that's much of the way Revelation is. And so as we read chapter 7 this morning, uh, we're starting to get into things that are happening both earlier in the first half of the tribulation, but it's going to be pointing us down the road a little bit to things that are happening at the midpoint of the tribulation and even after the midpoint of the tribulation. So this is sort of setting up for us things that have been, things that are, and things that will be, which is sort of a pattern within the book of Revelation. Let me also remind you that the book of Revelation is strongly rooted in the Old Testament, and it contains uh, more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament, and 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation, which is almost 70%, make strong, clear reference to Old Testament passages. So when we're reading these things and we hear familiar words and we go back and we look up, as we will do this morning, where did that idea come from? Where did that thought come from? And we'll go back and say, yes, it came from Ezekiel. It came from Isaiah. It came from Genesis. It came from Daniel. You know, it came from different places. And so the Holy Spirit himself, who was the author of the word of God, and this is where our comfort comes in. The Holy Spirit spoke uh, by the the power of the throne of God to give us this book, sixty six authors uh, wrote forty books. You know, uh, you know, wrote these. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, wrote these these books uh, over a period. Forty authors wrote the sixty six books over a period of several thousand years, and yet when you can read something in Genesis and something in Romans and see a perfect harmony, in Paul. And Moses, who was the author of the book of Genesis, of course, they never knew each other. They were thousands of years apart. But the things they say make perfect sense. They're perfect harmony. And so because of this, this is a witness to us that this is God's word. So here we are in Revelation chapter 7. If you'll bring up that first slide, please, just to kind of reground ourselves. We're on this timeline moving through Uh, the period of the tribulation. So we're in that that middle red portion there. You see Revelation 6 through 18. So we're in chapter 7 today. Uh, We're in, chronologically speaking, sort of the first half of the tribulation. But again, as I said, things are happening. There's a setup coming for things that will happen later in the book of Revelation. And if you could go to that next slide, please. And so Jesus is now, as we began reading it, the beginning of chapter six, he's been breaking these seals on this scroll that God put in his hand back in chapter five. So I'm not going to review all that, but that's, that's where we are. So Jesus has broken the first six seals, and we are now in chapter seven in what's called an interlude. There's sort of a, a pause. So if you go to the next slide, uh, so we've worked our way through the first six seals on the left side. And if I were to update my graphic here, I would insert between six and seven a break and say interlude or pause. Now, we're familiar with that. Uh, Literature often does that. If you go to a play or a concert, often there's an intermission, right? Um, So that's what's happening here. And God is pausing between the sixth and the seventh seal to give us a break while he sets up, while he reorders the stage. And he's getting things prepared before he executes the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter 8, and then out of the seventh seal, as we said last week, the seven trumpets come. And so that's what's next for us as we move through this. Uh, Thank you, you can take that down. So in chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, after what things? The things of chapter 6. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. It's interesting when you read this, uh, one of the things we said at the beginning is that we're dealing with prophetic literature. Sometimes we're using language to make analogies or to make a point. And this is something that we should understand because we do this very same thing all the time, don't we? We, we speak in metaphors. We speak in grandiose language sometimes. You know, uh, well, how big was that wave? Oh, man, it was as tall as a skyscraper. Well, not really. It was just taller than you. It just felt big, right? Or we, we always find ways to describe things. And so here, uh, it's interesting. So many critics of the Bible have come in and looked at passages like chapter 7, verse 1 and said, ah, The four corners of the earth, what are they saying? The earth's flat? See, that's your God. Flat earth theory, holding the four winds of the earth as if there were only four winds. But you know, this is speaking of from a prophetic point of view, and it's also speaking from the point of view of, remember back in those days, uh, there were compasses, right? There was no electronic navigation. There was no GPS. People use a sextant, if you're not familiar with that, an object to determine through triangulation where you are in relation to the sun and, and certain stars. So the phrase four corners of the earth." Um, is equivalent to the idea of the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And so wherever you are and you have that compass, and you're saying, I need to go south. Well, you look at your compass, I need to go this way. And so you orient yourself. And so this idea here is now coming to us from God's perspective, who sits above, you know, the Old Testament tells us he sits above the circle of the earth. So you get this idea that God, who is outside of time and space... Is ordering his angels, who are also outside of time and space, to go to a position, maybe four points around the globe, who knows exactly. And it says they are holding the four winds of the earth. So God is giving these angels power to stop the wind from blowing for a period of time. Have you ever thought about what would happen if the winds ceased over the whole globe simultaneously? Weather stops. Things that are airborne fall to the ground. There's no breeze. Vegetation is not getting pollinated. The air is not getting cleared. You know, we depend on that. If you, if you look at your weather app, you see air quality, don't you, every day? You know, air quality is good today, not so good today. Oh, If you get a fire in Canada and it's blowing this way, it's bad for us. The four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, this is just, in a sense, prophetic language. And it's painting a picture for us that God is in control of something sovereign and he's so much bigger than us. And so John is saying, I was allowed to see these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. What vantage point must John have been given in that moment to see such a thing? Holding the four winds of the earth. So he saw something akin to them holding something in their hand that he obviously made out that they're stopping the winds from blowing. And there's a specific purpose purpose behind this. And the the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Be a bummer to be stuck in the middle of the ocean and no wind for your sails, right? That'd be tough. Then I saw another angel, verse 2, ascending from the east, having, listen, the seal of the living God. We're going to talk about that. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, what is this seal of the living God? It's spoken of with this definite article. It's not just a seal, it's the seal. What is the seal? Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, if you want to keep your finger there and flip over a couple of pages gives you the understanding. And so this is a lesson for us, this, by the way, Bible students. Context. Let other Scripture be your guide. The best interpretation of Scripture is other Scripture. Revelation 14.1 reads as follows, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, the same people he's about to seal, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So what is this seal of the living God? It's the very name of God that's going to be put on the foreheads of this 144,000 people. So he saw this angel and you, you, in my mind, you know, I have questions, right? God, what is this? Did he have like a brand? And he was going to go and burn it on everybody's forehead? Or is it like a peel and stick thing? You know, like a Hannah tattoo? There you go. What's he going to do? What we know is that it's a seal. And a seal is something that marks ownership. It marks territory. And so here, this angel from the east comes in. He's been given a special purpose. He's going in to seal these people for the living God. He's going to put the name of God. What name? He has many names. We could go through and list all the names listed in the scriptures. All we know is it's the name the father's name written on their foreheads not the name of jesus not the name of the holy spirit but the father's name and as he and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying do not harm the sea the earth the trees till we have sealed the servants of our god on their foreheads so hang back boys just wait a moment i've got to go in and do my thing first and so we just read, of course, about these 144,000. So for the moment, it says here, do not harm. So as God provides this seal to these people, and uh, as we go through this, we'll begin to, sco- to discover who they are, but we certainly are not initially told who they are. But, but the common consensus is that these are people who become witnesses for God. And notice that they are Jewish witnesses. Now, if we take a pause here for a moment, put a little comma here, and if I could take time, I would take you back to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul stops that amazing treatise that he's giving to us about salvation and faith and the goodness of God, and he stops and he he focuses the light on Israel. And when he focuses the light on Israel, he talks about Israel's past in chapter 9, their present in chapter 10, and their future in chapter 11. And a high-level summary of that is this. God was displeased with Israel. He punished Israel. And in bringing the gospel to the earth through his son, Jesus Christ, he first came and brought the gospel to his people, the Jewish people, because it was to the Jew first and then to the Greek, or to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But then once the Jews had rejected the gospel of God, and this is peppered all throughout the gospels, and it's peppered throughout Paul's letters, then the gospel went clearly to the Gentiles. But in Romans nine, ten, and 11, it says that they are still God's special people, that God has not done with them yet. And no, the church has not replaced Israel. God has just put this pause in Israel's history And what's going to happen now through the book of Revelation, through the time of the tribulation, is God is going to basically fire it back up and he's going to say, I'm going to give my people another shot. I'm going to give them another opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so he seals these 144,000. Now, this begs the question, why would you have to seal them? Because what they are going to experience during the time of the tribulation. And remember last week, we began to look in those first six seals at all of these cataclysmic, horrible things that are beginning to happen. And this is just the beginning, right? We still have the seventh seal, we have the seven trumpets, and then we have the seven bowls where God pours out His wrath literally on the earth. So these people have to be protected, If you were to put this in modern terms, just to help bring everybody up to date, they're inoculated against kryptonite, right? They're inoculated against the virus. It's like they're being given an umbrella that God's going to rain down, if you will, nuclear material, and they're going to be protected. So God sets his seal on them. But this idea of God setting his seal on them, of protecting his servants, is not... An entirely new thing, because when God seals people, He does so for their good and for His good. Let me just give you a couple of references here to the idea of what it means to be sealed. In John chapter six, verse twenty-seven, listen to this: uh, Jesus speaking, "Do not labor for the food which perishes." But for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So God set his own seal on his own Son during the time of Jesus' ministry, and the seal that God set upon his Son was a part of what enabled Jesus' ministry to be what it was. In Romans 4, uh, we are told that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. So circumcision became a sign or a seal that his faith became his righteousness. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, who also, speaking of God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we've been given, as believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit as a seal or a guarantee or a down payment that God will keep His Word to us. Probably a couple of the most famous ones occur in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So again, if you are a believer in Christ, part of the process is when you believe in Christ, God seals you with his Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you see, our seal of the Holy Spirit on a smaller scale compared to what we're studying here in Revelation 7, our sealing of the Holy Spirit protects us and seals us and guarantees us that we're going to make it to heaven. You ever have days you feel like you're not going to make it? Remember this, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, right? Amen, hallelujah. Somebody wake up this morning, a little Pentecostal spirit in here. All right, there's one. All right, you're sealed. Don't underestimate. Don't, don't look at that as just uh, somebody licked the envelope. God has put his stamp on you and me. It is the seal of the Holy Spirit. How much more powerful would this seal be upon these Jewish witnesses when he puts his name on their forehead? Nevertheless, listen to this I'll just kind of end it with this second 2 Timothy 2:19. 2, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now it's for that reason that God says things like this in both 1 Corinthians 6 and in 2 Corinthians 6. "You are not your own. you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Oh, it's my body. I can do what I want to with it. That's the spew of the world. That's the lie of the devil. If you belong to Christ, you've been sealed. That means you belong to Him. You've been branded for God. You've been set apart. You've been called. You've been sanctified. You've been washed. So you've been sealed. And so this seal that God gives them will protect them. And I was thinking about this, and when did God do something like this in the Old Testament? Well, there's a few examples, but I tell you the one that just jumped off the page at me was that incredible example in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that story? They wouldn't bow down and they wouldn't worship the king. They wouldn't worship his idol. And so they said, Oh, king, you can do what you want to us, but we're not going to worship your statue Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship. We'll just take our chances with God rather than you. So these three men, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So they were bound up and they were cast in. Remember, the king was so hot that he had the furnace heated up to over seven times what it's normally heated, and the guys who took them to the door to throw them in, they got consumed by the fire they died. So they were thrown in. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24 of chapter 3, was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke and said to his counselors, wait a minute, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they said to the king, true, O king. Well, look, he answered, I see four men. I see four walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt my guys died. They got close to the fire and died. These guys are standing up. They're having a conversation. And who's the guy they're talking to? I want to know what's going on in there. Well, you go get him. I ain't going to get him. And so the king shouts, and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. You see how his attitude changed? Come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. The satraps, administrators, governors, kings, counselors, they all gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. To me, that is a clear picture of what God is doing to his servants as he seals them. So as hell begins to break loose on the earth, these 144,000, they are given a global passport. They are given free reign. They can go anywhere and do anything, and nobody will hurt them. Nobody will harm them. Nobody can touch them. Isn't that amazing? One of the things that I think that ought to speak to us is the goodness of God, the mercy of God. God that he would do this as he seals these people, as he prepares them to go out and to witness, to carry the good news, to carry God's message to first to the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles, because we're going to see in a few moments that there's a a, a harvest of people who come in during the time of the tribulation. You know, we, we did this thing here a couple of weeks ago, right? We had 60 plus people that came in, plus many of us. So let's just call it 80 or 90 people. We were out walking the streets, right? Knocking on doors, talking to people about Christ. How wonderful that was. How amazing that was. But it ain't nothing compared to these guys. These are Billy Grahams. These are Greg Laurie's. These are Louis Palau's. These are guys, these are Franklin Graham's. These are guys who just... Have you ever listened to an evangelist, by the way? Have you ever listened to these guys? For someone who's truly an evangelist, who has that gift and has that anointing and that calling, I just, the other day I I put on Renew FM while I was driving. Greg Laurie was on uh, and he always gives the gospel. So I was toward the end of his message and I was just sitting there listening to him. And I always have this sense, maybe it's just me, you can pray for me. But when I listen to these guys, when I listen to Billy Graham, when I listen to, to Greg Laurie, it's like, I want to raise my hand and get saved again. It's just like, yeah, I want that. Well, well, I already, i sorry, I already have it. I forgot. <laughs> but that's how persuasive they are. It's just a gifting, right? And I believe that these 144,000 are going to be Jewish evangelists who are sealed by God's name, who are sealed by his spirit. And they're going to go out and they are going to proclaim the gospel. And it's going to be a harvest such as we can only hope to ever see here in our lifetime. One thing I'm going to skip if you want to get into this later is in the naming of the 12 tribes, and it seems that often as you go through the the roughly 20 or so times in the Bible that the 12 tribes are kind of called out by name, uh, there is different Many times it's just different. it's not the same twelve names every time, so people get really hung up on that, and why did why wasn't Dan named? Why was uh, Ephraim not named? You know that kind of a thing, and this becomes a whole thing. There's pages and commentaries that are burned debating this thing. Um, so I'm not going to go into that. if you want to talk about that, we can. But we come in here to verse nine. And after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So I think what we're seeing here is we're, again, we're seeing details filled in. So we, we saw at the beginning of this, between the sixth and seventh seal, these four angels, they're ready to hold the winds up and they're going to bring more judgment on the earth. But then this other angel comes in from the east and says, hang on, boys, I got to go in. I've got to seal the servants of God. And then he sort of fast forwards a bit and he says, we're going to look down the road a piece and we're going to see what is going to be the result. I believe that's what we're seeing here. What's going to be the result of the ministry of this 144,000? So that's why he says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number. Notice what he says here of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches of their hands. You see the description given here of these people is totally different than the people that we believe who are the church back in Revelation 4 and 5, standing before the throne of God. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we know that's the church. Who are these people? Well, I believe these people are certainly Jews, but they're also Gentiles. They are tribulation saints. They are people who believe in the gospel during the time of the tribulation, which is, to me, again, a pointing to the mercy of God. You see, when when the church is taken out of the way, the rapture of the church leading into the time of the tribulation, you see, God hasn't given up on Israel, and God still hasn't given up on the people who have yet to believe. Now, if you will, the price of admission during the time of the tribulation will be their lives. Because as they believe, they will be put to death. Because we're going to get to chapter 13 which is the midpoint of the tribulation, which is where the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God, and says, you must take my mark, you must take my seal. Get it? Antichrist, he does the opposite of what God does. He's like, well, God has a seal, I have a seal too. And if you want to buy, if you want to sell, if you want to exist, if you want to have food to eat, you have to take my seal. And then your life will continue to be okay. You'll be able to go go through life, no problem. But if you don't take my seal... I'm taking your wallet. I'm taking your car keys. You're not going to be able to buy. You're not going to be able to sell. Your livelihood will go away. You won't be able to do anything unless you do it my way. And so we find out there in chapter 13 and 14 that it costs them their lives. Because if they won't take the mark, if they won't take the seal of the Antichrist, they will pay with their lives. And it says that they will be beheaded. Beheaded. So John is being given sort of a forward glimpse, a vision. I I looked, I saw this great multitude. It was so great no one could number. They're from every nation, tribe, people, tongue. They're standing before the throne. And they're standing before the the Lamb. And notice they have white robes. That word white means luminescent. This is not just white. Some of us have white on in here today. Oh, this is white like you've never seen. This is a glowing white. This is a luminescent white. And notice what he says. How did their robes get white? Let me just pause here for a moment and say, whenever the Bible, especially the Old Testament, describes our garments, so often we are described as our garments as as being filthy. And that filthiness is unrighteousness, right? Right? But these people are being described as having white robes and it says they have palm branches in their hands. Now, where did we ever hear of people who have palm branches in their hands? Oh, the day of the triumphal entry. And what was happening there, remember? They were taking the palm branches to declare the king as he came in. That was what they did when a dignitary or a king came into town. They would take the palm branches and wave it and declare, hey, this king is coming to town. He's coming to do something to negotiate a deal or whatever he's doing, and we're just welcoming him. But in this case, on that day, they were prophetically fulfilling Daniel's prophecy, saying this is the Messiah, the prince, riding into his city, fulfilling His prophecy, which is that he is the Messiah, the prince, and he's coming in, as Daniel 9 said, to be their God. And Luke, in his gospel, tells us as Jesus came in on that day that Jesus, as the the donkey was bringing him down, rather than being joyful and waving and going, you know, like in a parade, hey, everybody, you know, doing the wave, right? Everybody do that wave? Jesus was weeping. He was convulsing. And he said, all Jerusalem, if you had only known this thy day, the visitation, that I came, that your prince came, that your Messiah came, the one whom you believe Daniel speaks of, I'm him. But because you didn't believe, judgment's going to come upon you. And Jesus even spoke prophetically of what would happen uh, 40 years later in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian would come in and ravish the city and level it. When he said, not one stone will be left upon another. So Jesus comes in on that day with those palm branches, celebrating the feast. And what's happening here? These who have been martyred for Christ, they have white robes, they have palm branches in their hands to celebrate Jesus, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Man, they have an appreciation for their salvation. Because while their salvation, their believing in Jesus, cost them their life, they are now standing before the Lamb of God. They're standing before the throne of God. And they're realizing salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is of God. So let's talk for a moment about this idea of salvation that the Bible talks about. I think this is one of those things that becomes sort of passe in our language is Christianese. Oh, salvation. Yeah, salvation. Yeah, it's great. You saved? Yeah, I'm saved. Great. What does that mean? Do we ever stop to think about it? Well, these white robes, they spoke of the righteousness of Jesus. They spoke of the priestly service of the Old Testament, and they spoke of being set apart or having holy service. So they are there before the throne of God, to render worship to him, and that was a part of the job of the priest, was to serve God himself. And they are wearing those white robes. They've got those palm branches, and as they're standing before him crying out, salvation, salvation belongs to God. The word for salvation, the Greek word is sotirios or sotirion, And we've taken that and we've called it soteriology, which means, you know, the study of salvation. So if you ever take a class in Bible college or in seminary, you will take a class on soteriology, which is the study of our salvation. But we're going to do it here this morning, and you're going to get a master's degree when we're done. Salvation, the word, means deliverance, preservation, rescued to safety, defense. So what does it mean that God has given to us salvation? He's giving us deliverance. He's giving us preservation. He's rescued us to safety and he is defending us. God is now our defender. But what are we saved from? What are we delivered from? What are we preserved from? We are preserved from wrath. We are preserved from judgment. You see... There's grace and mercy, right? Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. And mercy is God withholding what you absolutely deserve. So salvation is God's mercy. He is withholding from us the wrath that we deserve. The penalty for our sin, the due penalty for our sin is death. We tried to think of it, we tried to rationalize from Man, to God, well, we have these laws. Well, you get speeding, you know, 10 miles per hour, you get a ticket. 20 miles per hour, you get a stiffer ticket. A little faster, they might take your license. You commit a certain crime, it's a slap on the wrist. You commit another crime, it's a stiffer penalty. You murder somebody, you're going to prison. If you live in a state that has a, you know, life in prison, then you go there. And if you go to a state that has a death penalty, then you go to death row to await your sentence to be carried out. And you see, our sin has separated us from God. And it's, it's brought us to a place of doom and hopelessness. And this is why salvation is so incredible it's so wonderful, is that God Himself saw our helplessness. And He reached down, He condescended to us, and He said, they'll never be able to save themselves. And here's the way I think of it. Somebody takes me, uh, I fly in a plane about 20, 30 miles out into the ocean and somebody just drops me out of the plane into the ocean and says, good luck. If you can swim back, then you're saved. Well, I can swim, but I can't swim that far. And plus the coldness of the ocean would probably bring you to hyp- hypothermia, plus then there's those things called sharks, right? So the chance of me surviving in that situation is pretty much Zero. Right? So, your chances of surviving or making it to heaven without God, without Jesus, are what? Zero. Because you cannot do anything to affect your condition. There is no way you can ever satisfy God's wrath. There's a word in the Bible. It's called propitiation, and it means to satisfy the wrath of God, and it says that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. Salvation, deliverance, preservation, rescued to safety. Luke 2.30, when Jesus was born, one of the people there said, for my eyes have seen your salvation. They realized that Jesus was that person. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. When he visited someone in need. In Acts 4, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which which we must be saved. No other name means no other name. There's no other religious leader, no other prophet, no other whoever who can have any effect on your salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Now we could go through easily a hundred scriptures this morning talking about salvation. Salvation. God has granted to us salvation. Paul said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So salvation is God's deliverance. Listen to this. Salvation is not merely deliverance from future punishment. It includes also freedom from sin as a present power. Indeed, it is this present deliverance which alone makes the future possible. Through union with Christ, the believer has become a new creation. He has died to sin. He has crucified the flesh and the passions of the lusts. And he has entered a new spiritual life of righteousness, peace, and joy. He is a saved man. He is reconciled to God. He is claiming and receiving the privileges of a son. He rejoices in daily experiences of a father's grace. He has learned that all things work together for them that love God. He continues to have his conflict with sin, but as he once felt himself to be the slave of the flesh sold into sin, he now knows his master is Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made him or her free from the law of sin and death. And the day is coming when the transformation of our bodies, we shall be freed from whatever we're dealing with and the sin that remains, and we shall be transported into the presence of Jesus and into his likeness. That's salvation. God gives us salvation. And it's a free gift. Will you receive that salvation? And I hope and pray that today as you are listening here, if you have never believed and received, that you would do that before we end this time. Because the salvation that God gives us is complete. It's free. And it's something that you can't do for yourself. You can't get it anywhere but from the throne of God himself. And it says that these angels, they stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And they were saying these words, verse 12, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Does God need them to say this? No but it's the privilege of the worshiper to worship his God. Does God deserve our worship? Oh, you bet he does. Is there anyone more worthy than him? No way. Is he the source of all blessing? He is. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, saying to John, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And it seems like the question is more rhetorical, like he's He's asking John to make sure he knows. And John seems to say, well, I don't know, but sir, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, does it make sense to you that you take something white and you dip it in something red like blood in order to get it clean? But this is what the Bible tells us, that the only way we can be made clean is by the blood of Christ. When it says that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, this, this verbal phrase means it's a prolonged process. This is something that happens during the time of the tribulation remember back in chapter 6 in verse 9, we saw when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which uh, they held. And it says they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood. It would seem that in chapter 7 here, we're seeing the completion of the those people who were horribly treated and murdered during the time of the tribulation. But you know, there, here's some other scriptures that help us understand this concept of our, our, white, uh, our robes being washed in the blood and becoming white. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, you probably know this one, "'Come now and let us reason together,' says the Lord." Though your sins are like scarlet, you see your sins are a stain, they're like scarlet, they're red, they're like blood, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall, shall be as wool, the, the implication being white wool. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, we already read this a few weeks ago. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So the idea is not that you and I are going down to the river with blood, and we're taking off our garments, and we're dipping them and rubbing them and scrubbing them and getting them ready and putting them back on. What does it say? To him, to Jesus, who loved us and washed us. Who did the washing? Jesus did. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We will not undergo the ju- severe judgment of God. We will be saved from the wrath of God. Colossians 1.20 says, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How are we saved? By the blood of Christ. It's really simple, isn't it? It's not hard. Unless you have pride. Then it's really hard. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So not only do they get to be before the throne of God and enjoy his presence and to be there as VIPs, as special guests in the presence of God, not being judged, not being condemned, standing there with new garments, luminescent white garments before the throne of God. But now it says, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. It's not just that God's like a dignitary or a king sitting up there and you're down here and there's a distance and it's like, yeah. No, God's saying, oh, I dwell among them. He's having conversation with them. He's having communion with them. You see, these tribulation saints, and it really is no different for them than for us, they were accepted. They were joyful. They were rewarded. Because of what they did? No, because they made it. They made it by the blood of the Lamb. They made it. They shall neither, verse 16, hunger anymore nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. You know, too often we attach justice and all of those things thinking that we're going to get something on the the earth. But you know, that longing in our hearts for things to be made right, you've got to understand something, you're going to be severely disappointed. That is not going to happen on this earth. The secular writers would call that a utopian view. There is no utopia on planet earth, people. It's not real. It doesn't exist. It only exists in the presence of God and it only exists in heaven before the throne of God. When you look around and you see the pain and the suffering... There was a lady during the outreach who told us this, that she's just completely disillusioned. She's like, I see it. She works in a field where she is helping in in drug and alcohol rehab, and she sees the worst of the worst. And she is rightly, you know, she's affected by it. She's like, where, what, how? And we were like, Jesus. And we continue to pray. I I continue to pray. I see her face. I pray that she'll come. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Now, isn't it interesting? This is just sort of going back to the whole relationship to the Old Testament. I'm going to read a scripture to you. Old Testament. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. Isaiah 49.10. Listen to the next verse, Revelation 7.17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're looking for something to resolve something for you here on this earth, I don't want to discourage you about that here because it's going to happen there. And this is why we look toward heaven, folks. This is why we have hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You know, the the pains and the suffering and the disappointments and the tears. uh, You know, the other day I I opened my phone and was going through, I was looking through my photos, you know, like you probably have like 10,000 of these things. And I'm looking for something, I'm scrolling through. And I get back to May and I see pictures of baby Jackie. And and all of a sudden, I just began to cry just looking at that. And, you know, my my poor daughter, she's just, she's grieving, you know. And yet it reminded me of this verse. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, there's things that just aren't going to get answered here. They're not going to get resolved here on this side of heaven. Everything gets resolved on the other side. 100%. Every question every tear everything gets resolved in the presence of Jesus now notice we've already talked about the salvation and we hardly scratched the surface that Jesus gives us we we've talked about how God has blessed us how he has delivered us how he's himself has saved us from wrath from judgment from the consequences and the effects of sin but he's also saved us unto glory and grace and mercy and love, and goodness, and freedom, and peace, and joy, and hope. These are all the things God has given us in the place of what we should get for our sin. And even better than that, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and he will lead them to living waters, to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Do you understand Psalm 23? As wonderful as it is, and we always read it at funerals and whatnot, that's great. But Psalm 23 is prophetic for this day when we are before the throne of Jesus, when we sit before the great shepherd, Psalm 36, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Psalm 36, 8 seems to me to be saying, go look in Revelation 7. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. Ezekiel 34, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them My servant David. Oh, wow. Who's that? That's Jesus. And he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. John 10, Jesus said these words, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. There's the salvation. And then in John 10, 14, a little further, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. And then in John 7, Jesus said these words with respect to this issue of living water. He said, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now here's the context for that. And the feast that Jesus was at on that day, every day, the priests would go in procession with pitchers down to a pool and get water from a stream. And they called that living water not not a pool, but a stream, they would get water from the living water from that stream and bring it back up and they would pour it out. And as they poured it out, they would shout out praise to God. That was a part of the ritual that they were celebrating. And on that last day, the great day of the feast, this was day eight of the feast, the priests had gotten the pitchers, and this was the, 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 uh, the grand finale, right? This is the, the ending. This is the big buildup. So on this last day, it's going to be this incredible situation. It's going to be this incredible celebration. And Jesus interrupts the feast and he interrupts the priest's activity and he kind of steps right onto stage center and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That had to send shivers through their spine for those who believed in Jesus at that moment because they realized that he was the fulfillment of that feast. He was the fulfillment of that ritual of going to get a pitcher of water and come back and pour it on the altar. Jesus is like, no, that's me. And this is what I'm doing for you. This is what I'm giving you. Remember Jesus, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And she said, what do Jews and Samaritans have to do with one another? Why would I get you a drink? In verse 10, Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. What water? The water from this well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. And what is Jesus doing for these saints? What is he going to do for all saints? He's going to shepherd them. He's going to lead them. Where is he going to lead them? To living waters. And God will wipe away every tear From their eyes. There's so much in the scriptures about tears, but here's my favorite one Psalm 56. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you ever feel like sometimes when you cry over whatever it is that you have pain about, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or whatever it may be, do you ever just wonder? Does God even see? Does he even care? Psalm 56 tells you that he does. It says he puts our tears into his bottle. So he sees, he cares, he knows. This is a part of the goodness of God. He finishes this off near the end of the Psalms in Psalm 126, and he says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. God is always giving us the long view out of the short view, isn't he? I can only see here, right? I just, I'm just, Lord, some days I'm just sick of it. I don't want to get in the car again. I don't want to go get in that traffic. I don't want to go do this. I don't want to go do things that I know are fruitless and they're going to burn. But I got to do it. God says, you go do it. Why? Because it's not about the job. You're my servant. You're my, my witness. You bring light and hope wherever you go, if you will let me shine through you. Why should I do that? Because of the salvation that he's given me. Because he sealed me. He sealed me unto salvation. I'm now his servant. He's now my shepherd. And I get to enjoy the benefits of great salvation. You know, when I started studying for this, I thought, man, another chapter on, you know, doom and judgment and seals and all that. And yet, I was reminded as I was going through this, you know, this, is, this interlude chapter is a chapter of hope, isn't it? It, it takes our focus off of the, the judgment of God that he's just begun to, to, to pour out on the earth. He's just cracked the can a little bit. And he says, no, no, stop. I want to give you a picture here. If you trust me, if you believe in me, if you hope in me, if you're mine, if you're sealed, if you're my servant, if you're saved, you have a shepherd. And he's going to deliver you. Do you believe that? Lord, we love you. We bless your holy name this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us your salvation so rich and free. God, you are good. You are so good. Lord, if there's any here today who just needed a little encouragement, a little shot in the arm, I pray that you've given it to them. And if there's any here today or any listening who have never believed then Lord, grant them salvation right now as they reach out to you in faith. And whether you pray a prayer or whether you cry out to him, that's up to you. Lord Jesus, I need you. Please give me this. I want it. I need to be released from the pain, from the fear, from the tears. And I want this hope. I want this freedom in Christ. Lord, give it to them right now, we pray.